Amen, amen, amen. Well, it's good to be with you uh, this morning. Um, it's always a pleasure to stand before the people of God uh, and share his word. And so, uh, if you will, so I'm not in your, taking too much of your time, if you would stand with me uh, and open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 26. Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 26. When you get there, say amen. amen. Give you a couple minutes or a couple seconds. Amen. We there? Good. Amen. Uh, as our custom, let's begin reading at verse 26. Uh, we'll finish up at verse 29. You guys jump in and then continue on reading. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. Through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Amen. Today I'm going to tag this text a transcendent unity a transcendent unity. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we're so thankful that you have gathered far and wide with your great grace, uh, all different people, all different types of people, different ethnic backgrounds, different races, different socioeconomic statuses, people of different genders, and all of those things. And within that, God, you've created a new humanity, uh, one that has been uh, united in the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, God, would you, today by your word, would you encourage us, challenge us, and inform us what the body of Christ is to be and to look like in the world in the matter of unity. And so uh, we just pray that you would be glorified, that your people would be edified uh, by the preaching of your word this day. In Christ's name, amen. 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 You may be seated. Um. Man, I feel like every time I start a sermon, I always use a TV or a movie analogy. So bear with me. So here we go again. Um, so not, not, not too long ago, I watched uh, a remake of a movie that came out uh, called RoboCop. You guys familiar with RoboCop? Yeah. Then you guys see the new remake of it? No? no? Okay. <laughs> Man. You're not missing anything. Don't worry about it. Um, uh, Y'all remember the old school version, though, back in the 80s with the, okay. All right, so, so in, in, the, uh, in, in the movie RoboCop, I was watching the, the new made version, uh, which, I mean, they don't got no creativity. They just remake everything now. It's just, anyway, that's another sermon. Um, but so, so in this movie, the, the movie starts off, uh, and, and the way the world is portrayed in this movie is uh, there's violence in every sector of humanity. Right? So in the local neighborhoods, there's violence. Around the world, there's violence. Uh, it actually is very similar to the world that we live in today. Uh, and so uh, this one corporation, they had a great idea and said, you know what, how about we keep uh, those people that protect us, like the police and the armed services and the military, how about we, we replace them with robots? So that way we don't have to have as many casualties with human life. Uh, which seems like a good idea, you know, let's, let's, 
less humans on the street being killed by perpetrators and criminals, and, 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 uh, and these robots are created and kind of built in a technologically advanced way uh, that humans can't be. So, for instance, the robots could uh, look at a guy, like if Pastor Larry was a criminal, they would look at Pastor Larry. Not that there's anything about you that says criminal, Pastor Larry, uh, but they would look at Pastor Larry, and they could tell by his, uh, as he's throwing up gang signs on the front, uh, the front row, uh, <laughs> they, they could tell by his facial his facial features, they could identify him, who he was, uh, his social security number, birth certificate, all the information they need. They could tell whether or not he had a criminal rap sheet, whether there was an outstanding warrant on his arrest. And so they could tell all this information just by looking at him, right? And so they, the, the machine just, it knows how to be efficient in doing its job. And so obviously crime went down. Now, unfortunately, what happened was in, 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 in the doing of policing the community, uh, the one thing uh, that the machines lacked was feelings and an emotions and the ability to discern certain situations and environments based on those feelings and emotions, and the machine ended up killing a child. Now, what happened next was people began to be in an outrage because they're like, well, we don't want machines policing us because they don't know what it's like to be human. And so there's going to be a lot of casualties because they don't, they're not like us. They're different than us. They don't feel like us. They don't have compassion like us. They can't discern uh, the different situations. The, the machines, in essence, lacked an adaptability uh, in the world. Because uh, the machine was built just to assess a situation and act. And no matter where it was, no matter what the circumstance was, no matter what the environment was, no matter what the situation, it was going to calculate what it thought was correct and it was going to dole out the punishment that was necessary, right? Uh, and in a similar way, that's what God calls the church to be. Not like the machine, but the very opposite. See, a as a machine, you can, you can put the machine in any situation and environment and it doesn't adapt. But the church based on God's word, isn't supposed to be like a machine. It's not supposed to be like a mere organization, but it's supposed to be like an organism. See, an organism feels things. An, an organism cares. An organism can adapt based on situations. See, in, in, an, in an organism, uh, an, an, an organism can go into a situation and learn and assess and make a judgment call that a machine can't make. And so that's what God, God calls us to be different people, diverse people, but a unified people as an organism. Amen. Meaning that this church, Epiphany Fellowship, if I was to transplant this church, pick it up and take it out of North Philadelphia, out of the United States, and drop it in the middle of Africa or the middle of the Middle East, the way that we experience and express church here would not work there. Amen. And so even though the church in and of itself inherently does not change what it is or its purpose, the way that it executes what God's called it to be changes depending on the circumstance and depending on the context. But in order to do that, the church has to be unified. See, unity demands that the church be an organism able to feel, care, adapt to culture, to races, etc., in the midst of adversity. Because that's where you really find unity. Or that's where you find the lack of unity and adversity. Pastor Larry sung a song this morning when he was doing announcements. He said uh, it was the Barney song, you know. 
I love you, you love me. We're one big happy family until conflict arises. <laughs> and so as the church, God has put the church at the forefront of what it means to be a unified people. See, just, if you look around here, you'll see different ethnicities and different races, different shades of people. You'll see different social classes, different economic statuses, different levels of education. All of these things are built on a system created by the world to divide. But Jesus in his grace and in his goodness wants to take all of those matters that divide and bring them together and unite them in one person, Amen. the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And so this is where we find ourselves in the middle of Galatians chapter 3 and Paul's argument. Uh, he's dealing with a bunch of Galatians who, uh, in short order, they want to begin living their lives underneath the law again, the law of Moses. And, and Paul starts the chapter basically by saying, man, y'all some fools. Y'all, y'all, some, y'all are some fools. He, he says, he says how, how are you going to be saved by the grace of God through faith and then continue on living your life underneath the law as if you earned the grace of God? And so he's making this argument, and he's, he's giving them a trajectory, and he starts with Abraham, and he said, God preached the gospel to Abraham and said that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Uh, and so he says in verse 7, know that it is the, those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, meaning not just ethnic Israel, but all of those who now believe upon that faith in Christ are now sons of Abraham. We'll get to that in a little bit. Then he goes on to explain the law and the purpose of the law. And he says that the law was given basically to be a babysitter for you. It was, it was a guide. It was, it was, its role was to discipline you at every turn. So you would step over here in the law and you would try to keep it and he would snatch you with his whip and he would say, no, you didn't meet up to the standard. And then you try this way and he would beat you again just to get you in line. And everywhere you turn, the law would beat you down, letting you know that you weren't good enough. And that was its purpose. The purpose of the law was to let you know that you couldn't keep it on your own and you needed a savior. And so he says, how stupid are you to want to go back under that again? And so Paul begins walking down through, through the text, and then he gets to this point where, he's, where we're going to kind of plant here for a little bit. He gets to this point, and, and he gets to the linchpin of, uh, of the book, or the, the first, these two chapters, three and four, and he says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. This is, this is the swing verse in this passage. Everything from Galatians chapter 3, verse 6 through uh, Galatians chapter 4, verse 31, point to this verse and point back to this verse. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Paul says three very distinct things in this verse regarding what it looks like, uh, what the new status of the believer looks like. What happens to you when you become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. The NLT switches the verse up a little bit. It says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ. For you are sons of God. It's, it's interesting to notice that the, the term son of God was, was solely used uh, as a title for Jesus Christ. Son of God. Jesus, the uniquely and exclusive Son of God, equal with the Father from all eternity, unrivaled by any creatures in his essential deity. Think about how, think, think about how narrow the, the description is for someone who could fit within that title. 
There's only, there's only one who's ever lived, whose feet have ever touched this earth, who's ever breathed this air, that uniquely could be called the Son of God. He is the exact representation of God. In him, the fullness of God bodily dwells. Colossians chapter 1 says, there is but one Son of God, and he is Jesus the Christ. But then when we think about how powerful that is, and we think about the uniqueness of the one person who could fit that role, how awe-inspiring is it when Paul says, you are sons of God? You are sons of God. What does Paul mean by that? Paul is referring back to what he said in verse 7. He says that the true children of Abraham are really the children of God. So now the blessing and the promise that was given to Israel through Abraham has been extended to those who believe on Jesus Christ. So now those who were far off, Ephesians chapter 2, which is primarily everybody in here, those who were far off from the redemptive purposes of God have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. And here he's saying, he's saying, if you have merely believed and had the faith and shared the faith of Abraham, you are now an offspring of Abraham, which means you're an offspring of the faith of Christ. No longer just ethnic Israel, but everyone, all of those who believe upon the Lord Jesus. But that's not all he's saying. He's saying, he's saying not only are you the true children of Abraham and the children of God, he's saying that now that you are children of God, you've entered into full adult sonship, which means you no longer lead the babysitter, which is the law. And so there was a time that was going to come where God gave the law and you were bound underneath the law and you had to abide by the law, and you were beaten down by the law, and the law did nothing for you but bring condemnation and death. But he says there would come a time when the people of God who had faith in Christ Jesus would experience the freedom of the promise that he gave, which was life and freedom. That's why he goes on in in Galatians chapter 5 and says, he says, for freedom I have set you free. He says, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not satisfy the desires of the flesh because there's a freedom that God gives to walk in his ways that you didn't have under the law. Sons is a significant term. It means to mature, full-grown son, you who are in possession of the inheritance, the fulfillment of promise. Being now called a son of God means that you have received the inheritance. You're a rightful heir to receive that which God promised through Abraham. See, if you weren't a child, you had no part in the inheritance. If you haven't believed upon God, you have no part in the inheritance. The moment your faith has been enacted through God's grace into Christ, you now become a child of God, which means you get the benefits of the inheritance. But not only does he say that you're sons of God, he said you are all sons of God, through faith, faith being the agent that, puts, that moves you along that process. Not, not through faith, not by natural descent or human working and striving, but through faith alone have we entered into this new relationship with the Heavenly Father. That's why John, in his gospel, he says, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Notice that he says it's through faith, not through your educational status. 
He says it's, it's through faith, not through how much money you've made or not through the legacy that you hope to leave behind. Your, your faith is not through what race you happen to be born or what majority culture status you hold to. It says through faith you've become sons of God. Faith, it, 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 it's something that can't be earned, something that's placed in a person, which is why Paul goes on to say, not only are you sons of God, not only are you sons of God through faith, but now he drops you into a sphere and said, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. The expression in Christ is used to describe that participation in and union with Christ uh, that is affected in the believer in the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. In Christ is the most basic description that the scriptures give to identify the believers of Jesus Christ or the followers of Christ. Being in Christ, this idea of being in Christ is not like putting your clothes into the closet, it's not like putting tools into a toolbox. This idea of being in Christ has the, the image of a, a, a tree limb being connected to the root. There's, there's a sense of permanence when you're in Christ. There, there's, a, there's a sense of being permanently connected to someone when you're in Christ. But, but how, do you, how do you identify the those who are genuinely in Christ with those who merely just say that they're in Christ. How, how do you distinguish between the two? Uh, being in Christ brings personal fulfillment. For those who are in Christ, being in Christ brings personal fulfillment. That's why Jesus says, he says, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. There is an innate longing in the soul of humanity for something greater for something deeper that can't be satisfied. That's why Ecclesiastes says that eternity has been placed into the heart of man. That's why God speaking to the prophet Jeremiah says, man, go tell my people why they keep going after these broken cisterns. Why don't they just come and drink from the living water? Why aren't they satisfied by me, the only one who can satisfy their ultimate longings and the demands of their soul? Why do they keep settling for cheap substitutes? To be in Christ means that you've been filled with God and your satisfactions have been so fulfilled in God that you don't have to look anywhere else. Hallelujah. To be in Christ means brings personal fulfillment, but it, it not just brings personal fulfillment. To be in Christ brings brotherly unity. The expression in Christ has a collective as well as an individual implication. It means to be related not only to the Messiah personally, but also to the messianic community he came to build. In short order, being in Christ predisposes one to community and fellowship. But, but listen to this. Community and fellowship are only genuine when commitment is present. See, this, this, is, this, is the, this is for those who want to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, but not his people. Just so you're aware, that can't happen. Unequivocally, it can't happen. The two are not mutually exclusive. In order to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you inherently are brought into a relationship with his people. There is no Jesus without his community. When you've been brought into the body of Christ... You are brought into a collective group of people who, just like you, have been saved by the grace of God. So even though you're different than them, you're united in the fact that you've placed faith in the same Lord. 
But not only does being in Christ bring personal fulfillment and brotherly unity, but being in Christ brings radical transformation. To be in Christ is to be radically transformed to the very root of your being. Every area of your life, I know that's our little slogan here, showing off the glory of Christ in every area of your, of, of your life. The only way to do that is to be radically transformed to the core of your being, to the depths of your soul. Notice, notice here what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. In Romans chapter 6, he says, I'm dying to my old self, but I'm going to be raised again to the newness of life. Listen to the terminology that's used by the word of God when it relates to the radical transformation and what happens in the life of the believer. There are two distinct words that are often used when it talks about describing what happens to the believer's life when they trust Jesus Christ. Creation, resurrection. Think of how powerful those words are and what that means to the believer's life. God has to create you anew, and you have to die to your old self and be raised to the newness of life. Creation and resurrection. Powerful terms to identify what it's like to be in Christ. You have to be made new, completely and wholly. And he says, he says, uh, for those of you who have been baptized in the spirit. But now that the faith has come, sorry, verse 26, in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Paul could be talking about two different things here. One was the idea of being baptized into Christ by the spirit, which, which is that point of conversion at conversion where God through the spirit baptizes you into himself, meaning that you are now placed into the family of God at saving faith. But the other idea here that Paul uh, is, is moving towards is he's reminding this Galatian Christian church of their baptism in order to renew their sense of belonging to Christ. Baptism in the New Testament invariably implies a radical personal commitment involving a decisive no to one's former way of life. Remember Galatians chapter 5, if you Walk by the Spirit, you will not. That's an emphatic, it's not going to happen. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And an emphatic yes to Jesus Christ. Being associated by baptism unto his death, burial, and resurrection is the basis for the crucifixion of the believer's sin nature and his victory over sin. Crucifixion involves death, and death is not extinction. Rather, it is separation. So our co-crucifixion with Christ does not mean that our old nature becomes extinct, rather that we are separated from its domain and dominion so that we can live a new way of life. For him, baptism was not an outward sign only of the personal response of faith, but also of the new community that belongs to Christ by virtue of grace alone. In both verses 26 and 27, Paul continues to hammer home this idea that being in Christ, being a fellow heir of the promise of Christ, is not an individual endeavor, but it's one that's done inherently in community. And so he uses this idea of baptism to bring them back to remembering that not only have they been baptized into Christ personally by saving faith, but they've also been baptized into community. And baptism was merely just a symbolism, an outward expression of what had already happened internally in their hearts. To make it plain, it's just like 
walking at graduation time. When you graduate high school, college, you, 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 know, you get your cap and your gown and you walk across the stage. But walking across the stage didn't graduate you. See, before you walked across the stage, there were certain requirements that had to be met. And once those requirements were, were met, you were already counted as having graduated. Walking across the stage was just a byproduct of showing the rest of the world that you graduated. In the same way, baptism is not something that does anything for you. It's merely an external showing to the world of something that internally has already happened. Historically, the doctrine of baptism has implied a gathering of the church, a community of intentional disciples marked off from the world by their commitment to Christ and their commitment to one another. Baptism was an enactment of the priesthood of all believers, not the priesthood of the believer, a lonely, isolated seeker of truth, but rather a band of faithful believers united in a common confession as a local, visible gathering of the saints. Then he goes on to say, he says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ or have clothed yourselves with Christ. This is the aorist middle indicative, which, which emphasizes a, a purposeful action on our part. So at, at baptism, this is, this is talking about what you've already done, something that has already been done to you by you. That middle indicates that it's not a full passive as in you step back and just receive it wholly from God, but it also doesn't mean that you do it apart from God. So this idea of being clothed or being uh, put, you putting on Christ or being clothed in Christ is the idea of a mutual working with God where you take responsibility for putting on the virtues of God, putting on righteousness, putting on holiness, putting on self-control, putting on love, putting on patience, putting on endurance. At the moment of baptism, there's a responsibility that the believer has to actively work to put on these things. See, in Roman society, when when youth came of age, he was given a, a special toga to wear. And that that toga identified him and gave him full rights of the family and state and indicated that he was a grown-up now. And so the Galatian believers had laid aside the old garments of the law and had put on Christ's robe of righteousness, which grants full acceptance before God. See, at at baptism, at the the conversion of the believer's faith, uh, at the putting on uh, of the virtues of Christ, this, this is an indication that you now have received the inheritance that was due to you. And it, and it shows that you are in the rightful heir to receive it. Because basically what Paul is saying is now, when you trust Christ and you're brought into the family of God, it's time to put your big boy pants on. It says, this, it says you no longer need the law to babysit you anymore. You, you no longer need somebody to watch over you anymore. It says it's time for you to be a grown-up Christian, to take the responsibility of having put on the fruit of the Spirit, something that's already been given to you by God. See, when you, when you grow up in your, in your parents' house, um, you know, they got certain rules that you got to follow. And some parents will kick you out for not following their rules. See, my mom wasn't kicking me out. She was punching me in the face. There was no such thing as kicking you out of the house. Because kicking you out of the house lets you off easy. 
She said, I'm going to make you work for it, and you're going to stay here, and I'm going to beat you every time you think you're going to rebel. But I know we don't beat our kids today. I know it's, uh, it's not tactful, for some of you anyway. But, but, but what happens is when you grow up and you leave your parents' house and you leave their law, you don't just run free and able, able to do whatever you want to. You can't just go into the world and just have a reckless abandon because you're no longer under your parents' law. Even though you've left your parents' law, there's still a law that you have to abide by. And the same thing goes for the Christian. Just because you're not no longer under the law of Moses doesn't mean when you become a Christian and you no longer need the babysitter that you can live any old type of way that you want to. That's why Paul in Galatians chapter 5 says that by freedom you've been set free and he walks through the distinction of walking by the flesh and walking by the spirit. In chapter 6 verse 2 he says you've been placed under the law of Christ now. So even though you're no longer under the law of bondage uh, of the law of Moses, you've now been placed under the law of Christ. And so when you walk in the spirit, that's, that's an indicator that you're receiving the right to the promise the inheritance of blessing that was passed down through the faith of Abraham. Verse 28. So now Paul is, he's, he's showing us where our unity comes from. He's showing us the commonness that we have. Verse 26, he says, if you're in Christ, you're a son of God through faith. Verse 27, if you've been baptized and you've put on Christ, there's this, there's this understanding that Paul is working through where he says, if you're a part of the family of God, you're not an individual, you're part of a collective group. And then he goes from there to verse 28, and he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male and female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. So there, there are no longer any barriers for anyone to become a Christian. What Paul is saying here is, he's saying, I don't care if you're a Jew. I don't care how well you follow the law. If you're a believer in Christ, you're a believer in Christ. See, see just in their day, just like in our day, there's a, there's a propensity to build up dividing walls in our cultures. If you look at it, look at, look at what he says. He says, neither Jew nor Greek, ethnicity and race. Slave nor free, socioeconomic status and wealth, male or female, gender, money, power, and sex. Even here, Paul is, Paul is hitting on what's driven the culture of humanity from the beginning of time until now. Money, power, and sex. And Paul is here saying, he said, I don't care how much money you got. I don't care how poor you are. I don't care if you're a woman or a man. I don't care who you hang out with. I don't care who you identify with. If you have the faith of Abraham through Christ Jesus, you're now a believer of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no distinction on race. There is no distinction on money. You can't buy your way in. You can't learn your way in. You can't work your way in. I don't care who you are. You all have the same opportunities, is what he's saying. There is no privileged person when it comes to salvation. There's no such thing as higher status and lower income. There's no such thing as poverty for those who need to be poor in spirit. 
as the Beatitudes say, everyone has equal standing before God in Christ. Because notice, everything finds its value in Christ. So before God, he doesn't look at anything else. He looks at in Christ. Two types of people, either you're in Christ or you're not. That's what God is concerned with. To receive the benefits of promise, being an heir of God, you have to have been in Christ. But unfortunately, that's not how we operate in the world. That's not how our culture has typically told the story about being in a relationship with God. I want to read an excerpt real quick from An American Slave, the Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass and his thoughts on American Christianity. This is what he says. He says, I find, since reading over the foregoing narrative, that I have in several instances spoken in such a tone and manner respecting religion as may possibly lead those those unacquainted with my religious views to suppose me an opponent of all religion. To remove the liability of such misapprehension, I deem it proper to append the following brief explanation. What I have said respecting and against religion, I mean strictly to apply to the slaveholding religion of this land. And with no possible reference to Christianity proper, for between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of peaceable and impartial Christianity of Christ, I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. I look upon it as the climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, and the grossest of all libels. This is merely an indicator of the division that has happened in the church when divisiveness sets in and we try to set ourselves up as, uh, as, as one higher than the other. When we set the barriers of race and, and wealth and gender uh, apart from being unified in Christ, this is what you get. You, you get a fraudulent Christianity. See, the question you have to ask yourself is, is when, when it comes down to it, do I place my preferences of culture and ethnicity before my in Christness with my fellow brothers and sisters? Yeah, 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 yeah. Does my in Christness supersede all of the worldly barriers that would deem to separate us apart? Does in Christness reign supreme? Is my first thought I want to be unified, you do, because we serve the same God? Or are you more concerned about how they're dressed because of what they can afford to wear? In Christ. This is what he's fighting for. He's fighting for a unity of mind in the believer's hearts where they say there's something greater that ties us together that can never tear us apart, and that's being in Christ. in Christ. The radical affirmation, this radical affirmation of of unity and equality in Christ is a deliberate rejection of the attitude expressed by the synagogue prayer. You know know the guy that uh, Jesus talks about in Luke. He says, says, man, there's a, that Pharisee comes in, he says, and his prayer goes something like this. 
Thank you, God, that you haven't made me like other men. Thank you, God, that I'm not poor like her. Thank you, God, that I have good clothes to dress in. He said, this, that's a, the unity and the quality that God wants us to move towards as the church is a rejection of this type of thinking. See, in my, in my house, we got a, a bunch of little kids, uh, and most of our friends now have kids, and so we're always outnumbered when they come to the house. Um, and what you'll find with little kids is most little kids need, they need like a nap during the day because they just can't operate like going all day with, with not going to sleep because um, eventually all hell will break loose. And so what you'll find every once in a while when you come to our house is, uh, and in a lot of homes with younger kids, uh, is there's going to be those days where you, you know, you got to keep them up a longer where they can't get a nap. And, you know, maybe you're out running errands or something. They just can't always... I mean, you can't always give them a nap. Listen, this is a parenting tip right now. If, when you have small kids, don't let their schedule run your life. I'm telling you that right now. You're going to be in trouble. You're going you're gonna to be in trouble. Now, now obviously, you've got to make adjustments, but daggone it if I'm just going to be sitting in the house all day and not going nowhere. Amen. Hallelujah. Bless the Lord. But, but there's a common phrase that you'll hear Every once in a while when our kids haven't had a chance to get a nap and they're just, you know, whining about everything. Like, they don't want somebody to watch TV with them or, you know, the carpet is brown and it's not red. Like, that type of, I mean, my daughter was crying the other day because it wasn't snowing on Christmas and she wanted to build me a snowman. I mean, this is, this is the type of stuff that you get when kids haven't had a nap. And there's a common phrase that me and my wife always tell them, you know, we pull them to the side and we're like, listen, baby, I, you know, I, I understand you're tired. I understand you're tired, but that's no excuse for your behavior right now. I, I understand. You know, you're, you're tired. I know you are. I know you are. But I need you to hang in there for me. I, got, you, I need you to hang in there for me, right? And we constantly let them know that their being tired is not an excuse for their behavior, now, how does that relate to the church? Well, just because there's differences and diversity in the church doesn't give the excuse for divisiveness. See, there's, 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 there's a calling out of fighting for unity that God wants us to have where he, he says, I know you're different. I know you don't like that. I know you have other preferences and desires. But, but just because you don't agree with them on that doesn't mean that you can just be divided and divisive see different does not mean divisive and see you 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 can't just wake up one morning and roll over and fall into unity unity has to be fought for you unity has to be struggled for you you've got to die to yourself to experience unity you can't have unity where you agree or like everything that's happening there will be no unity when your preference always wins out. Unity has to be fought for. This is what Paul is pushing them to. He's, he's, he's saying when you think about the fact that you all are in Christ, that you've all been placed in Christ by the same faith, then you, your differences mean nothing. He's, he says that you're supposed to be a unified body in Christ. 
Verse 29, he said, if you are in Christ, Paul uses this, this conditional if-then statement, if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. If you are in Christ, if you belong to Christ, if, you, if you've been placed in Christ, then you're an heir. This is what he's trying to get at. He said, he said you've already received the blessing of faith through salvation, the blessing that not only saves you, but the, 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 the blessing that sanctifies you. He said, he said, this is what you've already experienced, so why is there a tendency for you to always want to try to one-up somebody else in the family of God? He says, it's, it's funny, it's funny. I'm, stick, stick with me, I'm, I'm going to land the plane, but I just want to read what the Bible has to say about unity. The Bible says, has, has a lot to say about unity. What, why is unity in the church so important? The purpose of the church's unity is, one, to lead others to faith. Listen to this. Jesus, in the high priestly prayer, he says in verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Did, did you, the, the church's unity is critical to a dying world knowing that Jesus came to die for sin. Yeah. This, this is one of the purposes of the church, that the world might see how one we are and know that God sent Jesus. That's how critical the unity of the church is. It's critical to an unbelieving world, to see the unity of the church so that they know that God, said, God is who he said he was. Vital. Vital. The purpose of the church's unity is to lead believers to maturity until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What is the, the, the nature of the church's unity. What does that look like? Paul says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in one full accord, being in full accord and of one mind. Second Corinthians 13, he says, finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. But then he also makes some appeals to the church for unity. Ephesians chapter 4, eager, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 1 Corinthians 12, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may, be, may have the same care for one another. Colossians chapter 3, and all, above all of these put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 1 Peter chapter 3, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, Brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble spirit. But what are some, what are some of the barriers that we experience to unity? Because that, that's the appeal to unity. I mean, here you see the purpose of unity being a, a, a witness to the world. Here you see it, a, an appeal to unity to be of one mind, of one heart, one spirit, to agree, to live peaceably with one another. What are some barriers to that? One. You've created a barrier to unity when you complain about everything that's wrong with the church, but you are not a part of the church. 
I won't walk back through it, but in this entire passage, Paul makes it very clear that being in a relationship with Jesus Christ is being a part of the community of believers of Jesus Christ. Two, when you use past hurt from the church as an excuse for why you won't join a church or won't grow spiritually. Three, when you refuse to serve, when you're a part of the church, but refuse to serve in the church. Paul warns against the lack of unity and division in the church. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind. He says again in Romans 12, live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own eyes. Ephesians chapter four, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And then finally in Romans chapter 16, and then I'll get out your way. I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Notice here in this verse, that Paul equates teaching on the unity of the body of Christ with an important doctrine of the church. He says, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles. And then he says, those that do that operate contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. The doctrine of unity, the doctrine of agreement in the church, the doctrine to fight for one another. See, as as the church, God has put us at the forefront of what it means to display true and genuine unity. There's, there's, There's nothing greater that binds people together than the blood of Jesus Christ. There's a permanence with being in Christ that no other relationship on the face of this earth can match. And here he's, he's, he's saying, people of God, the, the reason why you're supposed to live in unity with one another is because you have a common identity in Christ. As the church, as we move forward, as we witness to a dying world, what a great testimony it would be to the awesomeness of the grace of God when the world can look upon the church and see an unbroken unity. When they walk into a church and they see a ton of different ethnicities, a ton of different social classes, a mixed group of men and women, and there's unity present. There's no greater testimony to the grace of God than a unified church. Let's pray. Father God, we are in deep, deep appreciation for what you've done in our lives. There there is no life in Christ apart from life in the body of your people. You, You... You use the body of Christ, the unity, the oneness, these relationships as a way to grow us, to challenge us, to love, to exemplify what it means to be followers of the Lord Jesus. And so God, we're praying today that your church, that this local church, the church universal, would would 
preach more on the doctrine of unity, that we would, we would suffer with one another in such a way that it shows the dying world that we're willing to fight for unity, not for unity of denomination, not for unity of preferences of worship, styles of worship, not for unity of formatting a church service, but the unity that we have in Christ. And so, God, I pray that you would grow us up to mature manhood and womanhood by the blood of Christ and that you would knit our souls and our hearts together in an unbreakable way through experiencing the same spirit, the same Lord, the same baptism because of the same God that we serve, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we just pray that in the name of your son. Amen.